0: Thank you, Dr. Shepkin, can everyone hear me? So, good morning everyone. Today I'll be talking about teenage pregnancy and contraception. I have no conflicts to disclose. And my learning objectives for you all today are to understand the effects of teen pregnancy on mothers, children, and society, as well as to identify barriers and opportunities to further improve the teen pregnancy rate. Let's start off with a case. A 16 year old girl presents for her well child check. She's eating fruits and vegetables. She sees a dentist regularly. She always wears her seatbelt and she's getting excellent grades in school. She tells you she wants to go to college and become a teacher. She also tells you that she's recently started having sex with her boyfriend and she swears to you that she's using condoms every time. There is no exciting medical management in this case. In fact, some of you may be bored already. Um, But this is a part of healthcare that really excites me. Preventative medicine, especially pregnancy prevention, can really make a difference in our patients' lives. And I'm hoping by the end, I can convince you to be excited about this case too. So we'll start off with a brief history. Teenage pregnancy is nothing new, but it certainly has changed a lot over the years. And this is due to multiple factors, including better educational opportunities for women, better job opportunities, and the rising age of marriage. For our mothers and grandmothers' generations, teenage moms were more likely to be married or get married after becoming pregnant. In fact, the proportion of teen births to unmarried women rose from 15% in 1960 to 89% in 2014. While the drop in teenage birth rate is frequently compared to the peak in 1991, it was actually significantly higher in the 1950s before the availability of the birth control pill and the IUD in the 1960s and the legalization of abortion in 1973. It's not entirely clear why the teen birth rate began to rise again in the late 1980s, but since 1991, we have continued to see a drop in the teen birth rate that is now the lowest it has ever been. And I want to dive a little deeper into the historical context of teen pregnancy. From the mid-1940s to the early 1970s, an estimated 1.5 million young, unwed mothers were forced to give up their babies. The women would be sent to homes by their families where they would live out their pregnancy and delivery and then return home like nothing had ever happened. Anne Fessler, an author and adopted child from this time period, wrote a book called The Girls Who Went Away, The Hidden History of Women Who Surrendered Children for Adoption in the Decades Before Roe V. Wade, in which she interviews more than 100 women about their experiences. I'd like to read a quote from one woman who gave birth during this time to give you a sense of what she felt. In those days, if you were pregnant and not married, you weren't an expectant mother. I was an unwed mother, which had serious stigma. My parents made the decision for me to go to a home. I never remember feeling for a second that it was my choice. Our names weren't used, so you had to listen to your number called over the loudspeaker. I was number 4552, like an inmate. Women describe feeling judged by their families, the doctors, the nurses, the social workers, pretty much everyone they came into contact with during this time. Some were never allowed to hold their babies, and another described the nurses lying to her about her child being in, in an incubator so she couldn't even see him. It was a very isolating and hidden experience. Contrast that to the modern day. 16 and Pregnant first aired in 2009 and subsequently ran for five seasons with 47 different pregnant teenagers. Teen Mom, which is a spin-off of 16 and Pregnant, is now up to season seven. And I must admit for all the research I did for this grand rounds I have never seen any of these shows. <laughs> <laughs> there has been some concern however that these shows would normalize and glorify teenage pregnancy. But others have argued the exact opposite is true. In fact, a New York Times article stated that the teenage pregnancy rate dropped 3 times as fast after 16 and pregnant debuted in 2009 and that rates were of decline were highest in areas where people were watching MTV though clearly there are a lot of factors at play. The take-home point here is that things are very different now than they once were. So now I'd like to move on to talk about some statistics. And much of the data I'm going to talk about comes from the Youth Risk Behavior Survey, which is put out by the CDC every other year. It's administered to high school students across the country, although it's not administered in every high school, nor is it even administered in every state. However, it is the largest data set that we have available to look at these risky behaviors among young people. Currently, the CDC is monitoring six different risk behaviors, everything from unintentional injuries and violence, to alcohol, drug, and tobacco use, and even unhealthy dietary behaviors and inadequate physical activity. The area we will be focusing on is sexual activity related to unintended pregnancies and STIs. The 2015 YRBS data, which is the most recent year available, reports that 41.2% of high school students have ever had sexual intercourse. 30.1% describe themselves as currently sexually active, which is defined as within the last three months. And 11.5% say they have had sexual intercourse with four or more persons. Of course, there is some variation by year with younger students being less likely to be sexually active than older students. And it was about 24% of ninth grade students that reported they had ever been sexually active compared to 58% of 12th graders. This is a graph looking at the percentage of high school students who have ever had sexual intercourse from 1991 when the YRBS survey was first administered to 2015. As you can see, there has been a very slow decline in the percentage of students who have ever been sexually active, with the 2015 data now being statistically significant from the 1991 data. But we'll have to continue to monitor to see if this trend continues. The YRBS survey also collects data on contraceptive use. And from the 2015 data, we know that 43.1% of high school students did not use a condom at last sexual encounter. 81.8% did not use birth control pills. 94.7% did not use a shot, patch, or ring. 96.7% did not use an IUD or implant. 91.2% did not use at least two methods of contraception and 13.8% did not use any method whatsoever to prevent pregnancy. New Hampshire is one of the states that does administer the YRBS survey, and I wanted to compare some of our data to the national numbers. As you can see, we're doing a little bit better than the national averages. In New Hampshire, about 39.4% of high school students say they have ever been sexually active. 39.8% did not use a condom at last sexual encounter and only 7.8% did not use any method to prevent pregnancy. This is a graph looking at the teen pregnancy, birth, and abortion rates from the 1970s to 2010, with the data obtained from the Census Bureau. And these numbers are continuing to fall. As of 2015, we're down to 22.3 births per 1,000 females aged 15 to 19, which is an 8% drop from 2014 and is 64% down from where we were in 1991. There have been recent studies looking at the reasons for the decline in birth rate that attribute all of the decline from 2007 to 2012 to increased contraceptive use. In this country, nearly half of all pregnancies are unintended, with a reported 75% of teen pregnancies being unplanned. This is a heat map looking at teen birth rates by state As you can see, it tends to be a bigger problem in the South, and overall in New England, we're actually doing pretty well. The rate in New Hampshire was 10.9 per 1,000 females aged 15 to 19 in 2015, which is one of the lowest in the country. We were actually the lowest for many years, but we've since dropped to third behind Massachusetts with 9.4 per 1,000 females, and Connecticut at 10.1 per 1,000 females. There are likely a number of political, religious, social, and economic factors that play a role in the map above. And even though we're doing better than most of the country, I would argue that we still have room for improvement locally. This is another heat map that breaks down the teen birth rate by county. As you can see, even within states, there's a large discrepancy in the teen birth rate at the county level. Again, this is likely related to many socioeconomic factors, as well as differences in access to care, which I will talk more about in a minute. This graph shows that there are also racial disparities when it comes to the teen pregnancy rate, with black and Hispanic women having doubled the teen birth rates compared to their Caucasian counterparts. The numbers, in case they're hard to see, are 38 per 1,000 for Hispanic teens and 34.9 per 1,000 for black teens, compared to 17.3 per 1,000 for white teens in the 2014 data. How are we doing internationally? Not so good. This data is a little old, it's from 2011, and the US has come down over the last few years, as we just mentioned, but we're still behind where the UK was five years ago. The U.S. has the highest teen pregnancy rate in the developed world outside of the former Soviet bloc. The factors driving these differences seem to be mostly related to differences in contraceptive use with survey studies of European teens that are similar to the YRBS surveys, indicating greater use of contraception and double coverage contraception. Other factors include the level of acceptance of adolescent sexuality, which is much higher outside of the U.S as well as the social expectation that teenagers will responsibly use contraception. The provision of free and subsidized contraception is also generally associated with lower pregnancy rates. In Switzerland, for example, there are very well-established sex education programs, an expectation that sexually active teenagers will use contraception, free family planning services, and low-cost emergency contraception all of which likely contribute to the very low birth rate among teenagers. So we'll take a little break from statistics now and we'll transition to talking about the effects of teen pregnancy. And as you may imagine, it's a little harder than taking care of a puppy. So what are the effects of teen pregnancy for mothers? They're less likely to finish high school with about 50% of teen mothers receiving a high school diploma by age 22 compared to 90% of women who do not have birth during high school. They're less likely to obtain a college degree, with less than 2% of women finishing college by age 30. And for young women who give birth while attending a community college, they're 65% less likely to complete their degree than women who do not have a birth during that time. They're also more likely to end up on public assistance, which I'll talk more about in a minute. And while it's hard enough to take care of one child as a teenager, about 17% will have a second child as a teenager, according to the most recent Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. This graph shows the percentage of mothers by age group that are on public assistance who had a child within the last year. The data is a little old, it's from 2004, and it's further broken down into married women in the light purple, versus single mothers in the dark purple. As you can see, teens aged 15 to 19 are more likely to be on public assistance than mothers of other ages, with 63.8% requiring some form of public assistance. This trend holds true for mothers who did not have a child within the last year. These programs mostly included WIC, food stamps, temporary assistance programs, Medicaid and housing assistance, among others. The latest data available from 2012 does not break down as nicely to look at mothers by age. But what we do know from the most recent data is that the majority of people receiving assistance are less than age 18. However, this of course includes children. The majority have a female head of household and the majority have a lower educational attainment. And these all describe our teen mother population. We also know that 7.5% of children on WIC had mothers who were under the age of 18. And a large fraction of women on WIC began childbearing before the age of 18. 18 to 31%, depending on the data set that you look at. And historically, almost half of all welfare beneficiaries had their first child in adolescence. We also know that teen mothers are more likely to require public assistance longer than older women. What about the effects of teen pregnancy for children? They too are less likely to graduate high school with only about two thirds of children born to teen mothers earning a high school diploma compared to 81% of their peers with older parents. They have lower school readiness and are 50% more likely to repeat a grade. They're also more likely to be incarcerated with sons of teen mothers being 13% more likely to end up in prison and they're more likely to become a teen parent, with daughters of teen mothers being 22% more likely to have a child as a teenager themselves, and they're more likely to be unemployed as a young adult. There are also costs of teen pregnancy to us as a society. Nationally, teen pregnancy cost taxpayers an estimated $9.4 billion in 2010, which was $12 billion less than it did in 1991. These costs include everything from health care and child welfare costs to foster care, incarceration rates, and even lost tax revenue. In New Hampshire, teen pregnancy cost taxpayers an estimated $20 million in 2010, which was $33 million less than it did in 1991. Clearly, this is a public health problem that concerns us all, and we know that there are significant cost savings to be had if we can prevent an unwanted pregnancy. Okay, so what can we do about it? I will talk about both barriers and opportunities, looking at sex education and contraception. And under contraception, I'll be looking both at better choices and better access. And we'll start off with sex education. And here is an inspirational quote from Mean Girls to get us started. So I want to begin with a history of funding for abstinence-only education. In 1981, under Ronald Reagan, we had the Adolescent Family Life Act, which provided support services to pregnant teens and their families, but also promoted chastity and self-discipline. In 1996, under Bill Clinton, a Democrat, we had the Title V Abstinence Only Until Marriage Program, which provided federal funding to states for abstinence-only education programs. Under Title V, you could only talk about contraception to emphasize failure rates and not in any more meaningful way. And it's important to note that every state except California has at one time accepted Title V funds. Then in 2000, under George W. Bush, we had the community-based, absence-only education program, which was by far the most restrictive. This was a program where grants were awarded directly to community programs by the federal government to promote absence-only education, and they had the strictest definition of what it meant to be an absence-only education program. Between 1996 and 2010 alone, we spent over $1.5 billion on absence-only education. Both the absence-only portion of the AFLA as well as the CBAE programs are no longer receiving federal funding. Title V expired in June 2010 under Obama, but parts of it were brought back by Republicans in Congress, and there are still several states receiving funding for these programs, which is allotted to $50 million per year. It's been reported that 66% of high school students receive a comprehensive sex education, which includes both abstinence as well as other ways to prevent pregnancy and STIs. And 25% of students will receive an abstinence-only education. And about 9% of students will receive no formal education on sex whatsoever. An article in the Journal of Adolescent Health found that students who received a comprehensive sex education were 60% less likely to have have a pregnancy compared to those who received no formal sex education, while those who received an abstinence-only education were 30% less likely to have a pregnancy compared to those who received no sex education. This latter point is not statistically significant due to the small number of teens who received absence only education who completed the survey. There have also been studies looking at young men which show that comprehensive sex education increases dual-use contraception as well. So in 2007, under George W. Bush, a federal report came out that revealed that abstinence-only programs had no impacts on rates of sexual abstinence. And one of the more interesting quotes I came across for this Grand Rounds came from, came from Robert Rector, an abstinence advocate, who in response to this report said, The other spin I think is very important is not program effectiveness, but rather the values that are being taught. So that's certainly one opinion, but when it comes to preventing teen pregnancy, I think that program effectiveness is pretty important. What about virginity pledges? So a study in pediatrics in 2009 found that five years after taking the pledge, 82% denied ever having taken it. There is also no difference in premarital sex, sexually transmitted diseases, or lifetime sexual partners. But importantly, those who took the pledge were less likely to use birth control or condoms. So hopefully we've cleared up the importance of comprehensive sex education. (laughs) And we'll move on now to talk about better choices in contraception. There are a lot of options out there when it comes to contraception, some of which we really never see in the adolescent population. The two that are most common are male condoms and the oral contraceptive pill, while the two that are most effective are the IUD and the Nexplanon implant. I know this data is a little hard to see, but bear with me and I'll zoom in on parts of it in a minute. Uh, These graphs are from a New York Times article looking at how likely it is that your birth control will fail you. It looks at the di- different methods, both with typical use and perfect use over a 10-year period. It's important to look at typical use, particularly in the adolescent population who may not remember to take their pill every day or to take it at the same time every day, or may not be the ones responsible to make sure they come in on time for their depot injection. And it's important to look at typical use because if you're not using your method effectively or the way that you're supposed to be, you're more likely to have an accidental pregnancy. So let's zoom in on some of the graphs, looking first at the methods that are most commonly chosen by adolescents, male condoms and the birth control pill. To orient you, the red line on top is the typical use line, while the gray line on the bottom is the perfect use line. The x-axis is in years, and the y-axis is the percentage of women who will have a pregnancy within 10 years. For condoms with typical use, 86% of women will have a pregnancy within 10 years. And with the birth control pill, it's 61% within 10 years. The one-year failure rates for these methods are also not very good. For condoms, it's 18% within the first year, and for birth control pills, it's 9% after the first year. Let's compare that to the most effective methods, the IUD and the implant. The first thing you should notice is that there is no typical use line. And that's because once these are in place, there's nothing more you need to do to remember to prevent a pregnancy. So after 10 years of ha- of your chance of having had a pregnancy with the IUD is 2% with the hormonal IUD and 1% with the implant. So let's talk about LARC, which is long-acting reversible contraception and includes IUDs as well as implants. IUDs were first available in the United States in 1968, and they were initially very popular. However, use began to rapidly decline in the 1970s as uh, significant health problems associated with IUDs, particularly the Delcon Shield, which is pictured above and to your right, became apparent. Uh, And this included high rates of PID, or Pelvic Inflammatory Disease, which was leading to infertility, and in some cases, even death, as well as septic miscarriages when they were not effective at preventing pregnancy. The Paragard, which is the copper IUD, was introduced in 1988, and Mirena, which is one of the hormonal IUDs, was approved by the FDA in 2000. However, there were early restrictions for adolescents for both, due in large part to the significant side effects seen with earlier versions. Initial FDA labels stated that users should have had at least one child and should be in a mutually monogamous relationship. And this excludes use in almost all adolescents. These restrictions were removed in 2005, but there still continue to be doubts about its use for young women. A study in 2008 suggested that many providers still believed that IUDs were not appropriate for adolescents or women without children. And a more recent article in 2016 that surveyed community pediatricians associated with Nationwide Hospital found that many still did not know that IUDs were safe and recommended for adolescents. Many did not feel comfortable counseling about them. And some even suggested that it wasn't within their realm to do so. So what do we as pediatricians need to know about IUDs? They can prevent pregnancy for three to 12 years, depending on the type that's chosen. They're inserted in the office setting, usually by a gynecologist, although there are other providers who have this training as well. And there are some absolute contraindications, including a severely distorted uterine cavity, which may impact placement, an active pelvic infection, pregnancy, unexplained abnormal uterine bleeding, which once there's been a workup would no longer be a contraindication, and current breast cancer. And it is important to mention to your patients that they do require a pelvic exam. As for the implants, the Norplant was first available in 1991. However, about 40% of women were requesting removal for side effects, including irregular bleeding, headaches, and weight gain, There was also a lot of difficulty with insertion and removal with these early versions. Part of that was attributed to poor training. Part was due to the fact that there were six rods that needed to be placed and removed instead of just one. And there were higher rates of infections with these earlier versions. Now we have the single rod implants, which was first the Implanon and now the Nexplanon. And these single rod implants were first available in the US in 2006 and this was eight years after they were available in other countries. And again, this is due in large part to bad memories from the earlier versions. Implants can prevent pregnancy for three years. They're inserted in the office setting under local anesthesia, and they have very few absolute contraindications, pretty much just breast cancer or another progestin-sensitive cancer. Whenever you're unsure about contraindications to different birth control methods, the CDC has come out with a very useful chart. It's available both on their website and as an app. And what I've shown you here is just part of the chart to give you an idea of what it looks like. At the top, you can see the different methods of contraception, combined hormonal contraception, progestin-only pills, injections, implants, and then hormonal and copper IUDs. And then on the left, there's a list of conditions. And for each, you can see what methods of contraception might be contraindicated or have risks that may outweigh the benefits. There are a lot of other resources available as well. And one we frequently use in clinic is bedsider.org, which is a very user-friendly website with good information about contraceptive methods. So there are a lot of benefits to LARC. It's a get-it-and-forget-it kind of method, and it's very effective, again, because there's no difference between typical use and perfect use. And then when you wish to become pregnant, you can have it removed and almost immediately regain fertility. For these reasons, as of 2014, it became the first-line choice for adolescents who choose to become sexually active per the AAP guidelines. It has also been the first-line recommendation for teens from ACOG since 2012. There are a lot of myths out there about LARC, and I've listed just a few of them here. First and most importantly, it is not only appropriate for teenage patients, but it is the first line recommendation. It also has no effects on fertility, and while there are many potential side effects listed on the package inserts, there is no evidence to support that LARC leads to weight gain, mood changes, or acne, which are all reasons that we hear from our adolescent patients about why they don't want to try these methods. This is a chart looking at the trends in long-acting reversible contraception over time. Our patient population, 15 to 24-year-olds, is in the dark blue. As you can see, long-acting methods are on the rise for all age groups after an initial period of decline. And now, about 7% of women nationally are using long-acting methods as of 2013. This chart looks at the devices chosen for long-acting contraception, The implant, again, first became available in the 90s, and it's now making a comeback after its initial decline. It's there in the navy blue. And IUDs are in the gray, and they, too, are on the rise, with most women who choose a long-acting method preferring the IUD. However, it's important to note that this data is not age-specific. All right. So we'll move on now. (laughs) to talk about better access to contraception. And this includes both affordability and availability. As we heard from Dr. Beaton several weeks ago, where you live has a great impact on the care you're able to receive. And this is also true of contraception and family planning services. It's important to point out that there are discrepancies in birth rates depending on where you live. The birth rate has been declining much faster in urban areas compared to rural areas. Between 1990 and 2010, the birth rate among teens in rural counties declined by 32%, compared to 49% in urban areas, and 40% in suburban areas, despite the fact that suburban areas had lower rates to start with. Some might wonder if this is due to higher abortions in urban areas, and we don't have the data to either support or disprove this theory, but what we do know is that nationally, rates of abortions are declining, and so this seems less likely. Others hypothesize that it's related to better access to care or contraception, or that it's related to better sex education. And certainly it's an area that warrants further study. This graph looks at the teen birth rate based on where you live. The light gray line on top is the rate in rural areas compared to the national averages, which is the red line in the middle. So how can we improve access to contraception? Well, there's an app for that. In fact, there are at least six different apps for that, for women to obtain birth control without seeing a doctor. All will prescribe oral contraceptive pills. Some will prescribe patches, rings, and even emergency contraception. Some will even accept insurance, including Medicaid. The way this works is that women will answer questions about their health online or by video chat, (laughs) Providers must follow telemedicine regulations, and physicians can only prescribe in states where they are licensed. Some companies will ship contraception directly to your front door, while others will send prescriptions to your local pharmacies for you to pick them up with insurance. There are various age limits depending on the company used. NERCS has prescribed to girls as young as 13. Project Ruby goes by the age of consent in that state, which ranges from 16 to 18 across the country. And virtual is only for women 18 and older. The other downside is that while it makes access easier, it is not necessarily the best method of contraception for our adolescent patients. So where else can you get contraception? And when we talk about the availability of contraception, we have to talk about Planned Parenthood, which serves almost 5 million people a year, including 20% or 16% of their patients who are under the age of 20. And it's an important resource for women who are seeking reproductive health care and counseling. What happens when you take Planned Parenthood away? Well, Texas recently excluded Planned Parenthood from a Medicaid waiver program. And a study in the New England Journal of Medicine found that after that, there was a 35% decline in long-acting methods, which is the IUD and implant. There was a 31% decline in injectable methods, which is Depo-Provera. And there was no change in short-acting hormonal methods, which includes oral contraceptive pills, patches, and rings. Importantly, there was a 27% increase in Medicaid deliveries, which was a statistically significant finding. And this makes a lot of sense. If you limit access to care, you're going to end up with more pregnancies. Pediatric primary care clinics are also an important place to get contraception. We may be one of the most important places for our adolescent patients because we see them once a year and we know sometimes if they tell us when they become sexually active and we can intervene. In our clinic, we have about 800 female patients ages 14 and up. We provide prescriptions for oral contraceptive pills, patches and rings. We have about 30 to 40 young women receiving Depo-Provera shots And we placed 103 Nexplanons in a three-year period. And you'll be hearing more about our Nexplanon rates in the future from Dr. Sydney Hartman, who is currently studying rates in our clinic. What about getting contraception over the counter? In a study of 147 countries, only 31% require a prescription to get oral contraceptive pills. And a recent review in the Journal of Adolescent Health supports including adolescents in any change in prescription status to make oral contraceptive pills over-the-counter. They argue that adolescents are more vulnerable to the risks of contraceptive failure, but they're less vulnerable to safety concerns and side effects than older women. Also, there's no data to support that over-the-counter oral contraceptives are increasing rates of sexual activity. This may be something in the future where our voices are needed to advocate for our patients. I'll also talk briefly about emergency contraception, which was first used by vets in the 1920s for dogs and horses who happen to breed with less desirable animals. <laughs> Today, emergency contraception refers to an intervention taken after unprotected sex to prevent an unwanted pregnancy. For most, this involves taking a single pill up to five days after unprotected sex. There are several methods available, with Plan B being the most well-recognized. It was first available over-the-counter in 2006, but only for those 18 and older. By 2009, it was available over-the-counter for those 17 and older. And now, as of 2013, it's available for all ages over-the-counter without a prescription. Use increased from 8% in 2002 to 22% in 2013, and this is in the context of no increase in sexual activity, which tells us that if it's easily available, people will use it. There are some generic methods available as well, but these are generally behind the counter and available for those 17 and older without a prescription or for those 16 and younger with a prescription. Plan B is $49.99 at Target, which can be a barrier in itself to our adolescent patients, despite the fact that it is available over the counter. (laughs) The slightly cheaper generic methods, again, are less accessible to some of our younger patients. ELLA is another method of emergency contraception. It's only available with a prescription and costs between $50 and $70, although it's usually covered by insurance. It's also available through Project Ruby for $67. There are different efficacies for different groups and different time windows, with the copper IUD being the most effective, though often the most difficult to obtain quickly. We should also talk briefly about confidentiality and how this impacts access to care. Why is confidentiality important, and how would things be different if teens did not have access to confidential care? A study in JAMA in 2002 reported that if parental notification was required for contraceptives, 59% of sexually active adolescent females would stop seeking sexual health care or would delay seeking care and only 1% would stop having sex. One of the barriers to confidentiality is the explanation of benefits. These are sent to the policy holder which is generally the parents and it's one way that parents can figure out when their teens are receiving sexual health services. Some states have passed laws that explanation of benefits be limited to services where payment is due, including New York, Wisconsin, and Massachusetts. And under Obamacare, this means that there are no bills going home in those states about contraception. Other states allow you to make requests to the insurance companies to not send the explanation of benefits home for sensitive health information, but this is a difficult process for adolescents to go through. To my knowledge, New Hampshire does not have any laws regarding explanation of benefits and confidentiality for teens. When thinking about access and affordability, we also have to talk about the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, which was signed into law in 2010 and included the contraceptive mandate, which states that insurance plans must cover prescription contraceptive methods and counseling for all women without charging a copay. There are some exemptions for religious employers, but in many cases, there's a third party involved that helps cover those payments. And this is important for our adolescent patients who may not be able to afford $50 a month for birth control pills or the $1,000 upfront for an IUD or implant. This graph shows the importance of the contraceptive mandate. It looks at the percentage of women who had out-of-pocket expenses for oral contraceptive pills both before and after the ACA. The vertical gray line is implementation of the ACA, and you can see that the percentage of women paying for birth control dropped dramatically after its implementation. And then this happened. (laughs) So now the ACA, including the contraceptive mandate, is in danger. And it's a little hard to know exactly what's going to happen, but the latest in the news is that the Trump administration is planning to significantly expand the number of employers who can qualify for exemptions for moral objections to their employees obtaining access to contraception. We also know that the AHCA has proposed cutting mandatory funds such as Medicaid reimbursements to Planned Parenthood, which will have major implications on women's access to medical care. So we're living in a time where the future of women's health care is very uncertain. And now, again, is a good time to speak up in support of access to care, including contraception, for all women. There have been articles looking at the Trump effect on long-acting contraceptive rates. One article in Time magazine reported that IUD-related appointments increased 19% in the month following Trump's election, looking specifically at one insurance network. Planned Parenthood was reporting a 900% increase in IUD-related appointments in the days following Trump's election, and here in our clinic, we're not immune to this either, so we saw a 170% increase in Nexplanon insertions in the three months following the election. Since it's obvious that we cannot rely on the federal government to keep contraception accessible and affordable, let's look at some examples of private and state-funded projects. The first of which is the Contraceptive Choice Project, which was funded by the Susan Thompson Buffett Foundation, Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, and other community and private partners. This project aimed to eliminate financial barriers to contraception, as well as to promote the most effective forms of birth control. They counseled women on the options that were available and then allowed them to choose whatever method they wanted at no cost to them. They study enrolled women from 2007 to 2011 in St. Louis. They had over 9,000 women, including 22% that were between the ages of 14 and 20. And the results were good. About 75% of women chose a long-acting method, which you can again compare to 7% of women using them nationally between 2011 and 2013. Adolescents were also choosing long-acting methods, with 69% of those between the ages of 14 and 17 choosing a long-acting method, and 61% of those between 18 and 20 choosing a long-acting method. Interestingly, there was some difference in the long-acting method that was preferred for these age groups, with over 40% of all women between 14 and 17 preferring the implant, and over 40% of women 18 to 20 preferring the IUD. Women were also more likely to continue using their long-acting methods, and this trend holds true for our adolescent populations. This is a graph looking at the 12- and 24-month rates of continuation of a contraceptive method. In the top graph, the red is the teenage population, with those using long-acting methods on top. And in the bottom graph, the orange is the teenage population, again, with those using long-acting methods on top. And as you can see, 67% of teenagers were still using their long-acting method at two years compared to only 37% of teenagers who had chosen other methods. There are also fewer babies born to those who chose long-acting methods. Women using pills, patches, or rings were 20 times more likely to have an unintended pregnancy in the first year compared to long-acting users. The authors also reported lower teen pregnancy rates, teen birth rates, and teen abortion rates when compared to the national numbers. Colorado then took this information and ran with it. They too were initially funded by the Susan Thompson Buffett Foundation with $23 million, and they provided birth control free of cost to teenagers and um, low-income women. And the birth rate among teenagers declined by 40% from 2009 to 2013 compared to 30% nationwide. And abortions declined by 42% among teenagers during this time. It's estimated that for every dollar spent on the program, $5.85 was saved to Medicaid alone. And you may remember that this is just one service that these young women are turning to. We also know that enrollment in WIC declined by nearly a quarter, from 2010 to 2013. The initial funds for this program have since run out, and there have been attempts to add it back into the state budget, which initially failed in 2015, but has since passed in 2016. For these reasons, Colorado is well ahead of the rest of the country in teams using long-acting methods, as you can see in the map. Colorado is setting an example that we should all strive for. The evidence is strong that women will choose long-acting methods if they are provided free of cost, they are more likely to continue using them, they are more effective at preventing pregnancy, and ultimately they lead to significant cost savings. So let's return now to our case. When I was preparing this presentation, I was asked to think about one of my patients I had given an explodon to, someone I felt I had really made a difference for. And what I discovered is that none of them really stood out in my mind. There's certainly been patients where I made time to do the next on insertion that same day because I felt they were at high risk, but I don't really remember much more than that. And I think that's an important point. Contraception management has become just part of something I do every day. And it's not generally noteworthy in my mind. And no matter what field you're in, if you take care of adolescents, contraception management is important for you too. Whether you have a poorly controlled type one diabetic, or a patient who is on a teratogenic medication, we are all responsible for preventing unwanted pregnancy. So in summary, teenage pregnancy is a public health problem that leads to worse outcomes for mothers, children, and has significant cost to us as a society. And there are many opportunities to continue to improve the teen pregnancy rate, including setting standards for comprehensive sex education, improving access to health care, continuing to support public funding of contraception, finding new ways to provide confidentiality to teens, and improving the knowledge and skills of pediatricians. I'd like to thank Kathy Shepkin, who has been helping me with this project for over a year now, as well as Colleen, Sam, and Julie Kim for coming to my practice presentation, and Luca for listening to this at home. Um, And as the last resident Grand Rounds of the Year, on behalf of the class of 2017, I'd also like to thank all of you for the last three years. And are there any questions? (laughs) Thank you very much, Dr. Listonville. That was fabulous. It's a topic that's obviously I'm very passionate about, but I'd love to hear any questions from the audience. Um, Dr. just a comment on the emergency contraception. Um, you have listed uh, copper IUD, but um, the, the failure rates for ELLA and Plan B are much higher than that for the copper IUD, which is almost 100% effective. So it may be more logistically difficult to place if you don't have confidence with it. But as an emergency contraception, pills is the best. And then it lasts for 12 years after that. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <right. Yeah. laughs> are there any um, statistics on uh, changes in STD rates? Because the long acting ones obviously don't uh, protect against a transmitted. Yeah. I mean, and, uh, yeah. you don't use them regardless. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I didn't find anything on that specifically other than um, a, an article published in a religious organization that was stating that in the Contraceptive Choice Project um, that we weren't really addressing the problem because the rates of STDs in St. Louis are so high. Uh, during the project, they were of course counseling on the use of condoms as uh, protection to STDs and were giving those out for free as well. Um, but I don't really have any specific data on, on the rates of STDs in general. Yes? Okay. Did you find anything about how to get um, adolescents to places that will put in IUDs? Because that's something I ran into here when like often they need their parent to transport them, even though they want it, they don't want to tell their parents about the Like transportation to getting to the gynecologist and explaining why they need to be there? Um, I don't know of any services that provide transportation. I agree that that, I think, in our clinic is something which makes putting in the, impl- the next plan on so easy, is that we can do it right in our office without necessarily the parents suspecting anything unusual. Um, <laughs> Minus the large band-aid. Right. They just have to wear a sweatshirt for a while. It's fine. Um, So, I'm not aware of anything. I have recommended to my patients who wanted to do other things to talk to older siblings who knew that they were sexually active or um, friends, but I'm not sure of any services that do that directly. I have two questions. Okay. (laughs) Expert opinion on Gilmore Girls. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) What (laughs) is the virginity pledge? Who do you give a pledge to? So, I will answer the second question first. They're generally these ceremonies for young women. They can be teenagers. They can be as young as, like, you know, six years old, and they have these ceremonies where they dress up in a white dress, and they're with their fathers, and they sign these forms that say they will not have sex until they're married. It's not like a Catholic school thing, like, no. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and as for Gilmore Girls, in terms of it, it impacting teenage sexuality, or like teenage rates of having sex. I <laughs> mean, Yeah, but she, she was in her thirties at the time that the show started, so I'm not sure it really applies. But they, what they say about 16 and Pregnant and Teen Mom is that watching how difficult it is for those teenagers to raise their child and go to school and the difficulties that they have in the relationship with the fathers who are still children and may or may not want to be involved is that that is actually really good contraception. Um, Are there any resources or physicians from not so progressive areas to encourage or help talk to parents who are religious and that you're not just encouraging them to have sex today? Have an implant. You know, I don't know about that. I think we're fortunate to be in an area where we are, I think, pretty liberal and open to those things for our patients. Um, and I know in the South where you're coming from, again, looking at that map uh, is a place where they don't really want to think about teenagers having sex. So I don't know that, that there are any resources to help talk to parents about that. I feel like a lot of parents are pretty stuck on if they don't want their kids to have sex because for whatever reason. Um, But I think the important thing is talking to the teenagers which we're always doing alone at some point during the adolescent visit and making sure that they understand what the risks are if they are choosing to become sexually active and how to best protect themselves. Great job, Mallory, that's a wonderful presentation. Sometimes it feels to me like we're letting the guys off the hook entirely. (laughs) They do have a role to play, and there are some who try to talk to the guys about making sure that they know the different forms of birth control, plan B, understanding that it's it's their responsibility and role to engage in that conversation and not shy away from it. But I wonder if you came across any data or approaches or have some thoughts about well, the and we're in the same direction? The one study um, that was looking specifically at males receiving a comprehensive sex education did show that they had higher rates of dual-use contraception when they were understanding all of the kind of risks and um, options that were out there. You see a lot more teenage males than I do. They don't tend to want to see me. I don't know. Um, I think Zach and Howell probably have a bunch of them. Um, but it is an important thing to discuss, and I think you know, when I have my female patients, it's a really easy thing for me to say, you know, you need to protect yourself from becoming pregnant. But I think it's a really important thing for those who are seeing male patients to also talk about you need to prevent your partner from getting pregnant. Um, so I think that is, a, is an important thing. Dr. Groth? I'm, I was just wondering about <clears throat> attitudes towards, like, when the physician actually broaches the topic I, I mean, and again, we're practicing here in New Hampshire where people are pretty liberal and they're thinking about this. But in most cases, when the adolescent is really worried that mom or dad is going to kill them, we then bring them in, and I would say like 99% of the time, everybody's on board, everybody has the same goals. I sort of feel like it's, Um, in my mind, I sort of compare it to like Jehovah's Witnesses who then say, okay, give my baby blood. Like, I'm not going to I'm not going to like throw my body in front of you as you say their life. Like most parents want, they want what's best for their kids. And so are there studies like in the South where the parents are like, no, no, it's all abstinence of like what the parents are really thinking? I didn't see any of that. Anecdotally here in my practice, I have had a mother who got very frustrated when she later found out that I had given her daughter birth control um, and ultimately left our practice. And so even in this area, we're seeing those people who are very stuck on certain opinions who don't want their children to have access to these services. So I'm not sure of any studies looking at parental attitudes in the South. but It was notable that in Dr. Lestumbo's patient, that woman was a teen mom who had her baby at 15 Mm and became very, very angry. And, uh, yeah. Uh, about the contraception. I would yes. also think that parents, you know, one, uh, contraception aside, I think parents have a really hard time swallowing that we do anything to their kids without their permission. Mm-hmm. You know, and as a as a parent, I also feel like, oh my gosh, why don't I have control of that? You know, and so even if, even if it wasn't contraception, I bet you would get people who would be mad if you did anything. Mm-hmm. Um, a tricky All right, I think we have time for probably one more question. And... um How about the schools? Have you found anything if the schools are coming more on board or not about providing information, contraception, and education? So that varies a lot depending on where you are. Um, Even from school district to school district, the sex education and resources that are Available in those schools can be vastly different. There is no national standard or state standard in a lot of cases about what needs to be covered And so that really is up to the school to decide and that depends on the community that they're in the economic religious socio social factors kind of thing um, overall. Yeah All right, well, thank you very much, Mel. Like she said, it's all out of applause.